This is the Education Gadfly Show. Of course, they always say don't hoard, but everybody just remembers when they said that about toilet paper recently, you know? What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas D. Fordham Institute. Go to the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Howard Husick. Howard, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Michael. Howard is an adjunct scholar in domestic policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Also joining us, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Well, Howard, we are having you on the show because a great white paper that you published just the other day at AEI caught our attention. It is called The Case for Breaking Up Big Urban School Systems. And I got to say, your timing is very good because as uh, folks in our world in education policy know, we have now seen, we're about to get ready for a superintendent turnover in each of the three huge school districts in our country, right? New York City, Chicago, and Los Angeles. This is not so unusual. The turnover in these huge districts seems to happen all the time, but that it's happening all at once is interesting. You go down the list not too far, you can add some others to the, the list as well, like Broward County, after the superintendent there has, has been indicted on perjury charges, he is stepping down. That's the sixth largest district. And of course, we always have this concern in the world of education policy that some of these big districts just can't seem to ever get traction on improvement. And so we want to talk about this idea you've got, and let's do that on Ed Reform Update. So Howard, in just a few words, what's the basic case for breaking up the big school districts out there? Well, there's three elements to it. One is competition among districts is a positive for improving educational achievement. Carolyn Hoxby wrote a famous paper about that in 1994, looking at the multitudinal districts of uh, the Boston area, kind of a crazy quilt of small districts. Turns out that that's a good thing for educational outcomes in that area. Costs might actually be lower, believe it or not, because when you have uh, smaller districts, overhead does not necessarily go up. It may actually go down. That's been shown with uh, smaller municipalities versus larger municipalities. And that has to do something with public union power. But then most importantly, it reduces, and that's the thesis of the paper, it reduces what I'm calling the market power of the teachers' unions. And so what we've seen during the pandemic is the leverage, the incredible leverage that the teachers' unions have in terms of not permitting the reopening of school systems and threatening strikes, which builds on the fact that in the last 20 years, among all labor actions of all types, teachers' union strikes are the fastest growing or they're an increasingly large percentage. And I'm submitting in this paper that that happens not everywhere, not in the suburban districts, not in the rural districts, but in the big cities. And the BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics data, bears that out. Oakland, Philadelphia, Denver, Chicago, Detroit, that's where the strikes occur because in New York, the bus drivers can shut down a system of a million students. So they have leverage and power and they're not unwilling to exercise it. Okay. Now, let me be clear. So you are talking really then about the big city districts, not just big districts. I mean, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, as our listeners hear all the time. Sorry about that. I talk about Montgomery County a lot. We're the 15th largest school district in the country, 160,000 kids. 
but it's it's not a big city district. It's a suburban district. It is actually quite diverse. Uh, lots of poor kids, uh, but also affluent families. So, I mean, is, is your analysis mostly then focused on the big cities where it's mostly poor kids and kids of color? Or would you also include the Montgomery counties, the Fairfax counties, the Wake counties of the world? Well, I, I think it's worth considering for Montgomery County and Fairfax County. They don't have the same problem with labor actions. And they're relatively high performing districts, of course. So the imminent need isn't as great. But the big city districts are, I would think, are what motivate me most to write the paper. All right. So let's imagine what this might look like. So LA Unified, you know, is one where it's actually, my understanding is it's this enormous district and it's actually multiple municipalities, right? It's not just the city of Los Angeles. So there you can imagine, okay, what, you would break it up and, and now have a district for each city? Is that what you would imagine? Or could you go beyond that? What, what do you picture? No, I think coterminous with municipalities is appropriate. And it's part of the home rule tradition of the United States. That's what New England is all about. It's about coterminous districts with municipalities. So that would make sense in that particular district. In a place like New York, where the five boroughs make up one large unified urban governance unit, Mm-hmm. You could break it up by borough. That would help. I would break it up into many smaller community districts. I think bringing education and accountability into much closer proximity to a voting and electorate is really what we need to balance the power of organized labor versus parents, which is out of whack right now. Yeah. All right. Well, let me push back on some of the obvious points. I mean, the, the first most obvious one is around equity right? You say, well, suddenly you break up LA Unified into all of these different municipalities and and the wealthy municipalities are going to have a windfall. They're going to suddenly get to keep all this tax money that currently is going to the poor part of the the district. And the poor parts of the district uh, are going to have less resources. And and by the way, uh, you know, the parents in those districts don't have much power, so they're going to be at even greater disadvantage compared to the teachers. What what do you make of that? Uh, Those are the obvious counter arguments. I'll say this. Look at the results right now. They're terrible. The results for achievement in New York City are abysmal, even though they're better than they used to be. Uh, Chicago, abysmal. So the idea of doing something that's radically different should be on the table per se. However, in terms of equity, just in the case of California, property taxes have been untethered to school funding for decades, since the 70s in, in that particular state. And it's Sacramento that's redistributing all the property tax money, and have been massive redistributions of local aid at the state level in all of the more liberal states. And so there is absolutely nothing that prevents more equitable funding arrangement redistributed from the top. And of course, we know that the spending per capita has not been a good indicator of quality anyhow. But if you think that achieving funding equity is possible, you can still do that. You can do it at the state level. That's interesting. Another uh, concern would just be around the coherence of district reform efforts. You know, here at Fordham, we certainly uh, think there's a great potential, for example, in curriculum reform done well. Some of these large districts, at least they do have central offices that can do a good job selecting a, a great curriculum and rolling it out, providing a lot of capacity. You know, tiny little districts, uh, you know, have a hard time doing that sort of thing. And, and so, You know, Morgan Polakoff has a book out right now about how what we really need is more coherence and not less, maybe greater scale. 
So what about that? I mean, what if you end up with all these tiny districts that really just don't have the know-how, the capacity to do the... the well, remember, I'm arguing to break up the mega districts. I'm not necessarily arguing for tiny districts. Okay. And so if you look at the school systems in the high achieving suburbs, they're small. I don't know if they're tiny, but they certainly have the capacity to adopt uh, new reforms. And, you know, how do, how do new ideas spread in American government? In anything. You know, one of my favorite examples is how did bicycle policemen start to be a thing? They were in Seattle and then suddenly they're everywhere. And that's because mayors and city managers and their chiefs of staffs, they go to conventions and they find stuff out. People will find stuff out from the Fordham Institute. They'll find stuff out from the associations of superintendents. Ideas can spread organically. And the idea that they're going to be implemented effectively in these mega districts that are untethered to the desires and accountability processes of parents, it's just not the only way to do it. Yeah. David, what, what do you think? I don't have a whole lot to push back on. One question I think is, is just, you've obviously thought hard about this. And I guess I don't, I'm hoping you can say a little bit more about mechanisms, right? I think you're saying essentially that the leadership of small districts is just going to be closer to the folks that they're serving, basically, right? It's it's sort of a Birkin argument for locating responsibility close to people. Can you just say a little bit more about that? I mean, one would hope, right, that, that all district leaders would be listening to their voters. I guess I'm just wondering if you can put any flesh on those bones in terms of what you've seen around the country, what you've heard, what you actually think that looks like in real life. Well, as you know, in a number of the big cities, school boards are appointed by mayors now. So, and that was done in the, in the name of efficiency, but we shouldn't give up on the idea of school boards elected by relatively modestly sized electorates. It happens in so many suburban jurisdictions where school board elections are contested. Being contested is a good thing. And look at the power that the, the teachers unions have in Chicago, New York, Los Angeles to elect mayors. And that's because you have such a large group of non-interested voters who do not turn out for primaries. They don't have school elections. The disproportionate power of the unions disadvantages the relative minority of voters who have children in the schools. So that's really a big interest of mine is balancing. Yes, it's Birkin, but it's also Tocquevillian. You know, I want everybody to have a local PTA that they can feel matters. I want them to feel like if there's a terrible teacher, it's not insane to think about that teacher not teaching there anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that when you have smaller electorates that are going to be more tied to communities, there's a better chance of that happening. Yeah. Well, one last question, Howard. And I guess I would just say that the last pushback, and to be clear, I think there's a lot of interesting parts of this argument, especially LA, where it's crazy that, that they have so many different municipalities uh, covered by this one district. But I look at still plenty of small cities or inner ring suburban districts that are high poverty. Fordham, we do a lot of work in Dayton, Ohio. This would be one of them where, you know, it's hard to look at them saying, say that they're getting great results either. I mean, I just don't know that I can make the case that they are necessarily higher performing than uh, Chicago or LA or New York City. And in fact, there's some evidence from Sean Reardon's stuff that Chicago was getting some pretty darn great results there for a while in terms of student achievement. So, I mean, just on the matter of achievement, are we sure that what's working in the affluent suburbs in terms of size and power and all the rest is, is going to be applicable to places where, you know, everybody's poor? 
even if it's a smaller district? Yeah, of course, we're not sure. And how to lift the achievements of disadvantaged students is a mystery that we've been dealing with since James Coleman. So I'm not spreading any elixir here. However, I think the relevant example remains Hoxby's paper about Boston, where you have blue-collar districts. They're not all affluent suburban districts. You have lots of blue-collar districts, Waltham, Massachusetts, you know, Quincy. These are blue-collar places that have relatively better results. And she posits and she demonstrates that it's because of the competition, voting with your feet option. I'll say this about Dayton, Gary, Buffalo. Those are the dominant districts. They are mega districts within their footprints. Mm -hmm. And so if there were four districts within Dayton, that might improve matters. I certainly don't think this is a magic formula, but you can't look away from the possibility that competition and especially, you know, I'm not saying there shouldn't be labor union contracts in any of these districts. What I'm saying is let's rebalance the power of the parent-based electorate with uh, organized labor. All right. Well said, Howard. We will leave it there. Again, Howard Hussick, the adjunct scholar in domestic policy studies at AEI. Check out his paper that is on AEI's website, The Case for Breaking Up Big Urban School Systems. Howard, thanks so much for coming on our show. Thanks so much for having me. Great. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. I understand you got a gas shortage there. In oh, my goodness. It was me and I don't know how many of my closest friends waiting in the gas line yesterday. Pumps already with signs, no gas, gasoline stations just completely closed. I'm like, yowza. I know. I mean, I, I have slight memories of gas lines in the 70s. Yeah. You know, I must have been a tiny little kid. Well, of course, they always say don't hoard, but everybody just remembers when they said that about toilet paper recently, <laughs> you know? It's like gas, toilet paper, everybody sometimes says don't hoard, we're all gonna hoard. Tragedy of the <laughs> There you go. All right, Amber, what you got for us today? Uh, we have a new meta-analysis, I love these, in the Review of Educational Research. I haven't looked at this journal in a while, and I, I should be, because these meta-analyses are hugely helpful. This one compares outcomes associated with children reading text on paper versus on the screen. Um, Apparently, the findings from separate experimental studies are somewhat inconsistent when they compare the two. So these, again, these meta-analyses like these are quite informative. The study looks across 39 studies, I think in four countries, reported in 30 different articles that met their selection criteria the most important of which is the studies have to be experimental, although a few were quasi-experimental, and compare reading the same narrative in digital and print format for emerging readers between one and eight years old. So these are our youngest learners. Obviously, the studies need to provide effect sizes or sufficient information to calculate those. They are examining whether digital books have the same effect as paper books on children's comprehension and vocabulary if the only difference is the reading medium, paper versus digital. They're also looking at how a dictionary impacts outcomes, how providing adult support during a book reading session influences their findings, and how the design of digital books might explain their effects. They're specifically looking at something they're called storytelling enhancements. That's typical voice alouds, but it's also when you have 
Um, you focus a child's attention on the storyline and their examples were synchronizing visualizations and actions with the narration such that the child has both visual and verbal clues. Five key findings. Number one, when comparing digital and paper books that only differed by digitization or lack thereof, paper books outperformed as digital books showed lower comprehension. However, if digital books had these story content enhancements I just mentioned, they were more effective than paper books on the comprehension side. Number two, but the setting also mattered. In studies that took place in a school setting, paper books outperformed digital books. Studies that took place at home or in a lab showed no difference. Number three, relative to SES, in studies that included low-income families, paper outperformed digital. In samples that included mainly middle and high-income families, digital and paper had the same impact. There was basically no difference. Number three, because the support of adults may have interacted with the medium, they tested the effects of enhancements controlling for adult support. They found that adults' mediation during print book reading was more effective than the enhancements in digital books that were read independently. Number four, if digital books only had a dictionary and no story content enhancement, there was no difference between digital and paper in terms of comprehension, although dictionaries did boost vocabulary learning. And number five, genre also mattered the outcomes were more positive for digital with nonfiction books. The 12 studies with only fiction did not reveal differences between paper and digital. And then there's a big discussion section. What does this mean for reading and theory and so on and so forth? One of the takeaways that, that I took away from the discussion was that, quote, screen inferiority can be overcome by the design of the digital books. When enhancements target the story content by, say, for instance, prompting children's background knowledge or providing additional context for events in the story or synchronizing visuals with the narration, all that stuff helped with the comprehension. Uh, on the other hand, dictionaries didn't appear to help with comprehension, perhaps because they focus on word meaning distracted young children's attention from the story content they also hypothesize that low SES children may struggle with digital if they're more used to game-like activities when they're interacting with their digital devices. But that was speculation. All right, that's what I got. Interesting. You know, of course, this is all about, uh, you know, sort of impacts, right? And outcomes. And, and then my head goes to this descriptive question, which is, are there a lot of kids that age who are using digital books? Is, is that a common thing? I <laughs> You're the one with kids, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, because it wasn't. I mean, but it, that might be because, you know, we're affluent and we're able to afford, you know, a whole bunch of books for their own library. And we also get to the library where we check out right. books. It just never appealed to me, for example, to have them read children's books on a Kindle. On a Kindle. I, I'm not a big fan of reading on a Kindle myself. So, you know, I don't know. But it just makes me wonder if there's a whole bunch of folks out there. I do think, you know, there's some cool initiatives to try to get more books into the homes of poor kids. And I do wonder sometimes at this point, is it cheaper to just give them a Kindle or some kind of device like that and load it up with digital books versus right. send in, you know, a hundred or 200 print books? Right. I, I don't know. Maybe, so maybe that's an argument for it, but otherwise I'm just like, why? Yeah. I don't need to even do this. I mean, it's just a, the technology of a book 
still works really well for little kids. <laughs> I mean, of course, as a former English teacher, I'm pretty nostalgic about, you know, paper book, you know, and just having the, the feel of a paper book and not a, you know, not a Kindle. Amber, just to be clear, we're just talking about the comprehension of the book, right? Not sort of future reading comprehension. That's right. The comprehension of the book and also vocabulary uh, was another outcome. Okay, so actually acquiring new vocabulary? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not, there was a vo some, some vocabulary outcome. I don't know exactly what the, what the measure was. Yeah, I'm just trying to wrap my head around our goals here, <laughs> right? I, I guess it's good to, to help kids comprehend the book with cues and so forth. But, you know, ultimately, right, like certainly in the context of Common Core and other things, the goal has been for them to be able to unpack difficult texts. And so I'm sort of wondering just at what point we're not really achieving the goal if, if we're constantly cueing them with things to help them understand whatever the book is. I'm not really going to make that case, but I guess it's just there's something a little bit odd about it. And it raises the question of, of basically, like, why is the kid reading the book, right? Do we actually want them to, to, to understand the book? Do we want them to learn to read? Do we want them to learn to, to read this sort of book unassisted? Yeah. You know, it, it, it points in different directions depending on what our goal is. And I thought it was interesting, right, that the impacts for fiction and nonfiction were a little different to your point, David, you know, when you get into, you know, more complex text, um, you know, there was there was a difference. The outcomes were, again, more positive for the uh, for the digital with nonfiction. So you got to think, OK, how, what are they what are they doing to potentially help kids uh, access a presumably a little harder text than a, than a narrative? Yeah. And it, it gets to this existential question of what is reading, right? I mean, it, right, if, if it's an enhanced book online, is, is that still reading? You know, I mean, separate question, what, what if it's a book on tape, right? Or book on tape and outdated, right? An audio book, you know, that could be super useful. Yeah, I mean, are we just picking up on background knowledge here again? Is, is that the kind of cue? I mean, is it just finding that we need to sort of prime kids or give them the background knowledge they need for the text again? Could be, but again, we're trying to think about, you know, why print versus digital would make any difference at all, right? I mean, that one hypothesis should be it shouldn't make any difference so that the extent that there are differences, you know, might have something to do with the technology. But uh, I think this is one where I we feel comfortable being traditionalists, right? <laughs> Give the kids some books, <laughs> put them in their hands, and uh, they're on screens plenty. This could be right. a lovely uh -huh. time for them to be off the screen. I don't know if I agree. If we're just picking up on the fact that these kids don't need the background knowledge that they're not necessarily getting, then these supports maybe are, are doing things that the teacher wouldn't necessarily be able to make happen if we just assigned a traditional book. I don't know. Amber, am I misunderstanding well, well, what these supports well, yeah. are? One of the enhancements was that it would prompt children's background knowledge. I don't know what that right. looked like. Um, but, but yeah, that was one of the things that the, that the digital was able to do and uh, more effectively, right, than obviously a print book that's not talking to you. I don't know. I, I, I mean, we usually consider that good teaching practice, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what they said, you know, when you've got those adults. I know there were a lot of different findings in there, but when you had an adult basically helping a child to, you know, access the print book, that was more effective than these enhancements in the digital books. Obviously, it, it matters to have a teacher there, you know, helping the kids uh, do these things that sometimes the digital books can't do as well. But the point here was that you can also program the digital books to cue background knowledge, just like a teacher would be doing. All right. So enhanced, enhanced. All <laughs> right. But but don't just, you know, stick it on a Kindle and leave it at that. If that's right. your story, that, that give is, them the book. That is true. 
All right, folks. Well, that is all the time that we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.